Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James 1, as I uh, get the opportunity to, to fill a pulpit here and there, uh, my, my hope and plan is to preach through the book of James, um, which will be uh, a, bit, a bit of a change-up from going through Daniel and Revelation, um, but it's a, it's a very good book. Um, like Just a, a little bit of, of background to the book, James, the author of this letter, is the, the half-brother of Jesus which is very interesting because James, we know as Jesus' half-brother, hated Jesus at first. Uh, If you were to read through the Gospels and hear about Jesus' biological family, they they did not like him. Uh, They thought he was crazy. They wanted to have him committed. Uh, But James eventually is converted and saved and becomes one of the major leaders of the church in Jerusalem after Jesus ascends back into heaven. Uh, and as, as we'll read in just a moment in verse 1, we see that he is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which 12 tribes, uh, it's kind of a confusing title, but 12 tribes should sort of set off bells there. You recognize that from the Old Testament, that is, that is like the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and so James is writing to Jews, Israelites, who are Christians and who are dispersed among the world. They're not living in Palestine anymore. So this isn't, this isn't a, a perfect illustration, but it'd be something like if, if Tyrone Church were to, for some reason, be scattered and have to move away to all the, the heathen lands of Ohio and Illinois and Indiana, leave this great state, and your three pastors were to write you a letter now as you are amongst those churches and those places. That's a little bit what it would be like uh, so, why does James write this letter? Well, let's, let's zero in on that a little bit, because James stands out from the rest of the New Testament books uh, in a couple of different ways. For one, uh, the book of James, if I can say it like this, doesn't have the most rigorous of theology in it. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a detailed explanation or defense of the deity of Christ or his sacrifice and atonement on the cross. Uh, Not to say it doesn't say anything about that, but it doesn't go on in detail about it. It's much more practical. It's about the practical living out of the gospel. There's a lot of concrete examples of what the Christian life should look like. Um, we'll We'll see already in our text this morning a series of commands, and James gives commands at a higher rate than any other New Testament book. Now, it's, it's partly because of this that one of the great reformers that lived 500 years ago, Martin Luther, actually considered James to be a, a secondary-type book in the Bible and in the New Testament, uh, believe it or not. Uh, Luther, and of course a, a lot of the Reformation 500 years ago, um, was, was sort of founded on the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and, and Luther at least didn't... didn't see that explicitly drawn out throughout this book. Um, so Luther being the kind of man Luther was, he, he decided to kind of drop the book down a little bit. However, now of course, justification by grace alone through faith alone is, is probably the major pillar of how we understand the gospel and the Bible. But if we understand James's big message, 
It, it does sort of fall into place. It, it does make sense um, what James is saying. Really what, what he's going to say throughout the book with all the practical, concrete examples of the Christian life is that faith and salvation must necessarily lead to changed hearts and changed lives. You cannot be a Christian and live the same way you did before you became a Christian. The church should look and sound and smell differently from the world in every single aspect. And so it actually fits really well with Jesus' own message. Uh, because especially from like the Sermon on the Mount, there are actually a lot of connections between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. But in one of the, one of the sections on the sermon, he, Jesus talks about the good tree bears good fruits and a bad tree bears bad fruits. And that's how you can tell the difference between a good tree and a bad tree or a living tree and a dead tree is based on the fruit that you see. And so in that sense, this book of James really is, it is still a heavily gospel-centered book because salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, necessarily leads to a life that is lived for the glory of God alone. So over time, we'll explore all the different sort of nooks and crannies of life that James talks about in his letter. Um, Before we, we'll read our section here in just a second. Let me pray for us um, before we read it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your many blessings and the ways that you have been faithful to us many times over. Lord, surely goodness and mercy have followed us and will follow us all the days of our lives. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear, for you are with us. You restore our souls. You are our shepherd. We pray that you would be faithful to us, and even as we read in just a moment, that you would give us wisdom as we hear your word and seek to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Amen. So as James's big point throughout this book is going to be, Christian salvation must lead to Christian 
godly living. Uh, He encourages these Christians not to be stained by the world. And uh, as we see right off the bat here, one of the biggest challenges to keeping yourself unstained from the world is, is how you deal with the trials that come your way. So James is, is, is very realistic about the Christian life. He's, he's not very idealistic at all, in a sense. Uh, it's, it's, he's talking about when, if we were to go back to, again, the Sermon on the Mount, the, or no, it's not the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, the parable of the sower um, in Matthew. As the, the seed is being sown and some land on good soil uh, and all these different types of soils that the seed lands on, in one, the... The plants begin to grow, and the sun begins to scorch them. They're scorched with the persecutions and trials of this life. In another soil, weeds and thorns grow up alongside of it and start to choke out the good plants. That, that, that's the kind of picture that James has in mind. The honeymoon, period, the honeymoon period of Christianity is over with these Christians. Now, a worldly way of thinking about trials, maybe, I don't, the, the world might tell you something like, it's, it, you know, cut and run when things get difficult. Uh, or they might tell you something like, take matters into your own hands, deal with it. But that's not godly wisdom. That's not biblical wisdom. Now, we all know, I think we can all think of probably a friend or a loved one who um, is like that plant that gets scorched by the sun or choked out by the weeds and the thorns. Just one person off the top of my head as an example, dealing with sickness for, for an unexplained sickness for a long time and pain um, and finally getting a, a, a tough diagnosis and soon thereafter loses a child, an adult child. And then that person doesn't seem to to, to, to bother with church, to bother with the Bible anymore. But the scorching sun of trials wither, wither us away. And they can often wither away our faith as well. Right, we, we all have examples of people that's happened to. But trials are not meant to wither away our faith. Trials are really meant, if we can keep up the the gardening analogy, trials are meant to fertilize our faith. And and I fully recognize that that is is so easy to say when you're not in the middle of it. It it, it is much harder to hear when you are going through it. But this is the way that God ministers to us in the book of James. These, These are the precious, great truths that God gives to us that the trials that we are trying to endure are fertilizing our faith. They're helping us to grow. So really what James is doing, if we were to kind of summarize this whole section into, into one sort of statement, James is just trying to get us to look up. He wants us to look up at God. He wants us to look up at heaven. He wants to get our eyes off of our worldly circumstances for a moment and see what God might be doing. So in these, these uh, in verses 2 through 11, there are really three sort of commands, three methods that sort of reorient us when we're facing trials. Those three commands in each paragraph are to think, to ask, 
and to boast. Those three commands, those three methods will reorient us in the face of trials. So firstly, verses 2 through 4 is to think. Now James is, James is, is really deliberately sort of casting a very wide net here when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, just in, in his letter alone, in his book alone, he deals with topics like the rich abusing the poor. He talks about unjust lawsuits being dragged into court, poverty, persecution, sickness, relationship strains, lots of different things he's going to address in this book. And, and these are all different types of things that we as Christians really sort of fall into. These are not... These are not messes that we make of our own accord and have to get out of. No, they're trials that we, we meet along the way. They just sort of happen to us as we go about our normal lives. Now, James calls them trials. He calls them one more thing in verse 3. All those different things that you, that you go through, he calls them testings. He calls them tests. Now, what is a test? That, that's a very important question to answer. Because if you get the answer to that question wrong, you can find yourself on very, very shaky ground as a Christian. These are tests not to see if you have faith. These are tests to help refine faith that already exists. So another way to say it is a non-Christian cannot go through a test because a non-Christian does not have faith. James is addressing brothers. Of course, I can extend that out to brothers and sisters. He's talking to Christians. So really what James is saying and what God is saying to these churches is, I have no doubt that you have faith. I have no doubt that it's there. But it can be a little bit stronger. It can be a little purer. It can be a little more sure. So James is really alluding here to an illustration that, that Peter in his letter states explicitly, which is this idea of, of precious metals that have to pass through a fire so that all of their impurities and imperfections burn away or melt away. And what you're left with on the other side is nothing but pure gold, more valuable than when it went into the fire. Our faith is, is the precious metal the impurities are all these little defects in our faith, in our lives, um, that draw us away from God, whether it be, be loving sin, certain sins a little too much, whether it's trusting in maybe worldly things for security, all these little defects that we can find. The fire that we have to pass through is, is the trials, and the result, James says in verses 3 and 4, steadfastness steadfastness, and you being perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Total maturity as a Christian. Now, what James sort of envisions here is not just this one-off trial that you go through and all of a sudden you're perfect. It's a, it's a very incremental sort of growth. As you go about your life, all these little different pieces get put into place. This little piece of dirt gets burned away here. This metal melts out there. It's really a lot like trying to put together a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. It does not happen all in one day. Right? You do a little bit here and there. You get one piece that goes here. Oh, you recognize here's, here's the red part that goes here. And you work on for months and months. And in the Christian life, you get worked on for years and years. 
So as an example from my life, one of the, I would say it's not all at once, uh, but this was certainly one of the, the biggest trials in my life was in college, and, and my best friend at the time died from cancer. Um, that, that was really growing up in the church, um, hearing about Jesus for my entire life, that was sort of the moment that I realized for the first time that I was going to die. Um, the world looks a lot different when you know you are going to die, does it not? There are so many things uh, I feel like God has done in my life through that trial, through through. I mean, days, weeks, months, still years of, of grief. So many different priorities. I mean, I was in college, I was terrified to share my faith. I was terrified to tell people about Jesus and put myself out there. Um, I was so afraid of what people would think of me. That, that sort of fear just kind of starts to fade a little bit when you realize you're going to die someday. Another big piece of sanctification in my life in college leading up to that point was, was anger and competitiveness, especially when it came to sports. And you know, it just feels like there can be some, a bigger purpose to playing sports with people than just winning when you realize all of us are going to pass away and stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. Right? So many little priorities and loves and securities that just kind of burn away, fade away when you look up. Now, that's not to say that I am perfect by any means because I'm still afraid of people. Uh, I'm still very competitive and can be very angry. I still struggle with all of those sins, but I like to think, you know, in 10 years I've grown a little bit. Whatever it is, there, there's so many big trials and small trials that we go through. On Friday mornings in the senior Bible study, we're going through Genesis, and we talked about Leah and Rachel being married to Jacob and how Leah was just so unloved and hated by Jacob. And Leah sort of learns, we sort of saw in, in those chapters there that God sort of fills the role of a loving husband and caretaker for Leah. God is a, a better husband and a better caretaker. All the little disappointments in life that we go through, that there's a better hope than anything in this life. Chronic sickness. We learn that, that God's strength is, is greater than our strength. Right? And then just all the really tiny things, probably that we go through every day. I, I can't get my checklist done of things I need to do. So many frustrations that things aren't turning out the way I want to. All of these you might consider trials. And all of them God is using. On the, in the negative sort of aspect, you learn from, from little things like not getting my checklist done, being frustrated with the way things are turning out. I've got to learn, I'm not God. That is tough. I don't like not being in control. I don't like not being able to get everything done. I can't do everything. And all the little frustrations, I mean, this, this is not my home. This is not where I'm meant to settle. These are not the joys and the loves on this earth that should take my heart. Really, on the positive side of it, what God tries to teach us through all these little trials is that there is a greater and better, all-sufficient King and Savior 
in Jesus, who is better to worship and give all of your glory to. There is one who is worthy. We're meant to look forward, like, like Peter actually says in his letter as well, that there's a better inheritance than what we get in this life. There's an unfading, imperishable, uh, undefiled inheritance in heaven waiting for each one of us. And so as we go through the trials, big and small, God is putting all these little pieces of the puzzle in place in your life to help you worship the right things, to love the right God. And over time, you become something like a a battle-tested soldier rather than the the newbie just out of basic training. Your faith is the the purified metal, not the mixed one. Now, now I'm sure if we took a poll in the room and and we asked, you know, is your faith perfect? Uh, I expect everybody would, would say no. That, that's, that's maybe the easy question. The harder question is, do you want to be more like Christ? Do you want your faith to be more perfect? Do you want to be more holy? Do you want to be more ready for heaven? Do you want to be a stronger, more enduring, more persevering, more growing, more healthy Christian? Okay, now that, that answer is actually kind of easy. Yes. But are you willing to go through what God uses to make you like that. It's the trials. It's the trials that God uses. When we keep our eyes up on heaven, we really see what James says. We count them all as joy. Sheer joy, pure joy. Again, that's not to say we can't have other reactions or other emotions. But we must also think of all the trials that we go through as an occasion to rejoice at what God is doing. So James is really, he's trying to take captive your minds. He's trying to get you to think a certain way. He's trying to get you to think the way Paul does in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That that only makes sense if you're looking forward to heaven. And so we we often pray in the Christian life for for healing, for success, for, uh, you know, help me pass, help me get an A in this class. But have you ever prayed that you or your friends or your brothers and sisters would count their trials as joy. That's a tough prayer to pray, even if you're with somebody, to sit there in front of somebody and help so-and-so count this cancer as joy. It's almost something you don't want to say out loud, but that is what God, that's where he's trying to direct our attention. Do you pray your brothers and sisters or yourself would become more mature through your trials. Help my brother and sister to know the surpassing worth of Christ, to savor the resurrection of the dead more because of this. That is a, that is a radical change of thinking. But that is what helps us withstand the trials. So, 
Firstly, James tells us to think. Uh, Secondly, next paragraph here in the next command in verse 5, James commands us to ask. And again, James is, he's, he's not idealistic about the Christian life. He's very realistic in his view. Uh, now, we're, we're meant to sort of look forward to that day and strive for the day when we will truly lack nothing in our character and be perfect. But until then, you may have noticed in your own life, I have noticed in my life, I am still lacking a lot. <laughs> there is a lot of growth that I need. And until that day, um, we are meant to ask for God's wisdom through the trials. Now, now specifically, what kind of wisdom is this? This is, this is interesting. Um, Alec Motier, the, the, the commentator, says, specifically, the wisdom James has in mind is the ability to see the things the way James does. The ability to see our trials the way that James does and to make the right decisions during those trials. I'm not, I don't know if you've thought about that, but, but, but we need wisdom to actually see our lives the way James is trying to tell us to. Uh, now, now there is, there's sort of an extended metaphor here about people and those who ask and, and doubting. And we'll get to that in a second. But, but really the heart of this command is what James says about God in verse 5. God is a giver. He is a giver. It's in his nature to give. He's not stingy. He's not the kind of person who gives and then expects you to pay him back. He loves to give his children what they need, and he gives without reproach is kind of a strange phrase to, to sort of throw in there, but he's the kind of God who gives without finding fault when you ask. He's not the kind of God who blames you when you try to come to him for help. Now listen, I, I'm actually, I'm a terrible example of God in this instance. I'll use myself as a very negative example because my boys come to me all the time, my two toddlers, and ask me for help all of the time. Whether it's trying to find a toy, whether it's just trying to scoop up food off their plates with a a spoon or a fork or something, it is very, very easy for me to get short with them and to help them with reproach and to say something like, It's a fork. You know how to use a fork. I know you can scoop up your food. I know you can go into that basket and look for the toy on your own. Come on. You got this. You don't need my help. Uh, That is not God. He does not blame us when we come to him for wisdom. He doesn't scold us while we're on our knees and say, this isn't that hard. You got this. Come on. No, he helps. 100% generously, sincerely, simply, he just gives. Now, however, although God is a giver, his giving is not automatic. So there's sort of this sense here in which we we have to reciprocate with God while we're praying and while we're asking. Now, again, this is another one of those spots here uh, where if if we don't really get this right, it can really, really shake us. It can really put us on uncertain ground. Is it 
okay for me to doubt? That depends on what you mean by doubt. Um, In verse 8, James calls this sort of doubter a double-minded man. Um, Now, if you were to to flip forward to James chapter 4, verse 8, James talks about this double-minded man again. And when he does so there, the context that he has in mind is the person, the kind of person who is friends with the world, who asks for things so that he can spend them on his own passions, They're proud and don't submit to God. They laugh about their own sin. And God ultimately calls this sort of double-minded person an enemy of himself. So what he has in mind here by a double-minded person who is doubting is really somebody who is intentionally trying to keep one foot in both camps. They're trying to keep one foot in the camp of God, and they're trying to keep one foot in the camp of the world. And they go back and forth between the two. So one day they try to, they pray and they ask God for help and to use his wisdom. The next day maybe they go to the world and they try to use the world's wisdom and use what James will later say is selfish ambition and cunning and maybe some sort of cutthroat tactics. There are very, very different kinds of doubts in the world. There's this sort of doubt which is just a basic inconsistency at the end of the day. You really can't have both of these, like trying to serve two masters. And it's very, very different than the occasional sort of uncertainty or lapse. It's not even that sort of, James isn't even talking about that sort of persistent nagging that can eat away at us. Um, no, he's talking about somebody who, who is not, not perplexed, not confused, not unsure about the future, but somebody who's really, really distrusting. That person doesn't get God's wisdom. Now, here's where Solomon is a a good example for all of us, because in 1 Kings 3, it's, it's just so fascinating to see the way that, you know, when God comes to him, he turns around and approaches God like this. He calls himself a little child. Isn't that great? He's a little child who doesn't know how to go out or come in. He just feels so inadequate for the task of being a king. And more than that, being a king over God's chosen people. So he asks for the ability to discern between right and wrong, to to be able to understand so that he can rule well. And, um, And what does God do? He pours it out on him. Of course you can have wisdom, Solomon. That's exactly what I want you to ask for. He does the same thing for us when we feel inadequate for the task and for getting through our trials. He pours out the wisdom that we need. So what an awesome privilege as God's children. And even especially when when you do occasionally lapse or have that nagging in the back of your head, that doubt that you struggle with. What an awesome promise to just be able to ask God. Just wherever you are, to just get on your knees and know that you're you're bowing before the throne and you have the king's ear. 
what an awesome promise that he will absolutely give it to you. There are a lot of prayers that, you know, we don't know how God will answer it one way or the other, but this is one of those prayers where you know how he's going to answer it. You know that he will say yes. So all we have to do is ask. It it takes wisdom to see the hard things is ultimately good. It takes wisdom to love those who hurt us. It takes wisdom to be content in poverty. And our natural inclination is to do all of the opposite things. And what we need is the, the supernatural wisdom. So God tells us all you have to do is ask. So James tells us to think. He tells us to ask. Thirdly and finally, he tells us to boast. Verses 9 through 11. Now this, this might seem like sort of a strange place to, to get into a discussion of, of rich and poor, but, but we'll see throughout this book that, that money actually seems to be one of the prime sort of examples of how God tests his people. Um, really on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, whether you're on the poor end or whether you're on the rich end. And, um, you know, that sounds like something only the rich person would say. What a trial this load of money is. Oh, if only I had $10 million in my bank account, what a trial that would be. But we will see in James, it is a very severe test. Not a sin, not a sin at all. But it is a test because it draws your heart away. It is, uh, well, the exhortation for both of these, these brothers, and I will say, I, I, I do think that both this poor person and this rich person are brothers. There are, there are some who would argue and make, make a really good case that he's talking about a poor Christian in verse 9 and a, a rich unbeliever in verse 10. Really, the essence of the message is still the same. The exhortation is to take your eyes off of your financial situation Look beyond your worldly circumstances and focus on what is spiritually true of you. To see yourself how God sees you. And so the lowly and the poor Christians of this world, they're, they're, they're looked down by everybody in this world. They're humiliated. But in God's eyes, they are exalted. Several times throughout Scripture, as a believer, you are called God's treasured possession. You are princes and princesses of the king. You are heirs of the greatest inheritance, and you are brothers and sisters and co-heirs with Jesus Christ himself. The rich brothers, by all accounts, I mean, they're praised by the people of this world. They're praised for their skill, they're praised for their, what people think is wisdom, but but really, they ought to be the kind of people who, who humble themselves before God. Right? They, they sort of need to be reminded that, you know, I'm still a sinner. I'm still nothing in the eyes of God apart from Christ. I still need to repent. I still need to, to abase myself before the king. And again, here's another great connection back to Solomon. Now Solomon in 1 Kings 3 is, 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 uh, is gifted with both riches and honor by God. But like uh, Mark was alluding to when we get later on in the book, 1 Kings 10, Solomon seems to have gone beyond the point of just being blessed. He 
seems to become a bit of a hoarder when it comes to chariots and gold. Becomes a little bit like Smaug the dragon from the hobbits, sitting on his mountain of treasure. He gets arrogance, and his heart turns away from God. He stopped seeing himself through God's eyes. He should have kept seeing himself as the little child who didn't know how to go out and come in. But he turned away. It's one of those warnings we'll see throughout this book. But for now, the church is meant to be a, a countercultural community that reverses all of the values and priorities of this world. We shouldn't value people based on a number next to a dollar sign because wealth is just so fleeting. It's one of those things all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament's warning us that, that in a split second, everything that you've earned for your entire life, you die and it goes to somebody else, just like that. Literally the blink of an eye. So we're not meant to boast in riches. We're not meant to despise the poor. And actually, sometimes in, in, uh, in Christian circles, we actually need to reverse that as well and say, we don't despise the rich for being rich, and we don't boast in poverty either. We boast only in that which is eternal and lasting. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We think, and we ask, and we boast, and he helps us 